There he is. Hey, right. what's happening? Oh. Hey, hold on a second. How oh, hold on, yeah. Hold on. We're all going to tilt this way now. There we uh, go. There we go. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, there we there go. You go. Hey, there Beautiful. we go. Dun, dun, I don't know what's going on with my phone here, but I, I always have to keep doing it. Yeah, it's it's but, so weird with Zoom on the phone. Like if you hold a portrait, then it stays. It's it's all over the place. Okay, oh, hold one second. I'll get it together here. No, you're good. You look good now, but as long as we're okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Good he morning. looks very good. Look at that haircut. We we share the beauty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Beautiful. his is nice and shiny, Mitch. I think your guy's got to do better. Yeah, I do. I do it myself, and I'm just not been in the mood lately. But all right, geez, there you go. Uh, Look, let's let's talk all about this. The Elephant of Mars, brand new record from Joe Satriani, coming out on April 8th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. There's multiple colored vinyl, CDs, different packages available. Love to see it. Welcome to the show. Very stoked to talk to Mr. Joe Satriani. Hey, how are you guys? Oh, uh, we're great, great. First of all, I want to start with the two amps you got behind you. You got the EL34 100 watt head. You got yes. the original. Is that a block letter? It looks like a block letter. Uh, is it? Uh, or does it have the signature uh, on the front? Signature. Huh? The block letters in the other room. Uh, um, yeah, I've had that forever. That thing sounds amazing. Uh, got my JVM. I've got a, a beautiful 7100 watt. I don't know if you can see that. Can I do that over yeah, on the smoke? Nice. There you go. Yeah. And uh, is that a fractal that, on top? It is. Oh, you're a cheater. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Cheater. That is the no. that's the most expensive uh, digital delay ever. I mean, that's all I use it for is delay yeah. and reverb in the effects loop. It seems to pass the signal better, although. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've done gigs where I just use a little boss delay and that's fine with me. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> sure, it must be a lot better than you know, uh, lugging around the rack with the PCM seventies and the SDE three thousands. Yeah, I was never a big fan of that. I mean, a few, few of my heroes like Eddie Van Halen, he he did really well with that. And uh, but I've always liked having one amp to plug into and one speaker box to get mic'd up. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, I've always looked for something a little simpler, a little bit more direct. Uh, but yeah, sometimes I've done that where I have a dry cabinet and two wet ones in stereo. That's like luxury. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, Your tone's I, mostly been just like a half stack the whole time? Uh, that's all you hear. I mean, they only mic one cabinet live. And in the yeah. studio, we mic a lot of stuff up. But we kind of, fa- eventually, we favor one mic on one speaker for whatever part it might be. Um, right. Not very often. I mean, I think in the old days, there was a lot of blending. Like uh, Andy Johns for the Extremist record, he put seven mics on a cabinet and he would blend it. Uh, and he would sort of improvise it during the course of the day. And I never knew what he wound up using. Wow. It was a mystery. No one ever touched that part of the board. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was like, he wouldn't let anybody go near it. Um, right. But yeah, you get some interesting sounds, but it kind of depends. If you're the only guitar, uh, you can take up more real estate. But if you've got, you know, 12 tracks of guitar and keyboards and singers, you've got to, you know, carve your space. Um, so sometimes... Yeah. Uh, a smaller rig is better. We were just talking to Steve Vai the other day, and I was talking to him about, you know, uh, they, when you listen to instrumentalists and guitar players that are playing these, I mean, look, this is your 19th record of basically mm-hmm. instrumental rock guitar. Yeah. At some point, it must be like 
Steve described it as it can be bleeding people's ears when you're just playing <laughs> these melodies. So your tone has to have a certain kind of sound to it. Um, do you go for that when you're recording these records and trying to find a tone? And like, does it have to sound pleasurable? And how do you achieve that? Yeah, I'm always chasing the the inspiration, the meaning of the song is the most important thing. And if it's if it's not right as I'm playing it, then I just change it. And I and I keep moving towards that. It's a it's a real different thing than like when I uh, when I'm recording with Chickenfoot. You know, I've got this crazy, insane singer, Sammy Hagar, with this yeah. huge voice. And, you know, Chad and Mike, just fantastic, big personality, big sound to everything they right. do. And you can take a solo and step on the Wawa and just shred like crazy because you got like, what, eight bars or 16 bars. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to Sam. That's a very different thing than if you've got four and a half minutes of a kind of a ethereal uh instrumental let's say a song like faceless from the new record or even the, the first single sahara you know it's it's conveying complex emotions and so you you you're not just the lead guitar player that shreds in the song um and so it's it's entirely different it's like the way a, a jazz combo or an orchestra would approach it um uh, you know whoever's playing the main melody that's extremely important that you get the tone is right for the melody is right for the meaning of the song. Um, yeah. and so that, that's the way I look at it. And, uh, and yeah, I'll tell you, this is the craziest thing. So you're looking at all these beautiful amps and they are really great amps behind oh, me. Yeah. And I love playing through them on this album. Although I record direct, I've, I've done that for decades. Um, and then we reamp very often when we get into different rooms. Uh, and, uh, and so you can re-record, you know, a solo or a melody through. It's funny you say that because Steve Vai said the same thing. He let he does a lot of reamping, and I don't yes. think a lot of fans realize that. Like, it's a lot more technical than just putting an SM57 on your your 30 watt green bag. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, eventually that may be the thing that why you're reamping because mm -hmm. maybe when you performed it, you didn't have that great you know four by twelve with the greenbacks in it, and but you know that two weeks from now I'll be across town. And I'll have the perfect one I can borrow from my friend Steve or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so you plan it that way, and and that's the way you get records done. Uh, the thing is, is that we did that as we've done for all the, the albums, and but in the final analysts, we kept moving towards this Sansam plugin, and I didn't use any amps on this new album. It's just insane I, when what? I think about. It. I didn't plan on it. <laughs> and wow. we recorded the Marshalls and the 5150 and we had lots of really cool modeling suites. And uh, Well, I know you've but, got your amplitude stuff. I mean, you modeled the Rockman and the 5150 and all these things. Like, yeah, I mean, so much digital, fun. Yeah, with the digital stuff, you don't really need to use an amp. It's funny. It's a, It really depends on the context, I'd have to say. And, you know, uh, you guys know that, you know, program music... Like if you listen to EDM music, it's it's going to be more compressed in general. If you're making music, let's say for video games, there's no dynamic range because the music has to accompany sound effects and talking and things. So yeah. uh, they squish it down. So why would you need a super dynamic, you know, th uh, a recording of a guitar through three double Marshall stacks or whatever? It's like 
pointless. And then you it might gets brick well, walled and mastering. I mean, <laughs> exactly. So you might as well, uh, you know, have fun with AT5 and, and go through all those incredible presets and then you can make it match, you know, y- your context. But if you're making a classic rock kind of an album, then everything's got to breathe a little bit more. You know, right. you're, you're, you, you want that dynamic range. You want your guitar to, to be really loud and all of a sudden get buried by a drum fill or, or, or something, you know. Um, that's what makes, I think, rock music so interesting is that interplay in the recordings. Yeah. Uh, but again, if, if that's not the function of the recording, you know, then you shouldn't do that. So in this particular case, what surprised us was that recording the Sansan plugin and then taking that out, putting it through some cool outboard gear. Like I, I kid you not, um, John Bryan's uh, studio where we did the mixing uh, he had Les Paul's very own personal 1176 limiter. So my guitar went out wow. into that and a few other really beautiful tube uh, EQs uh, and limiters. And so it just, you know, it brought the level of that plugin up and the plugin itself is extremely dynamic. It's not like some of the other, um, let's say, heavy metal modeling guitar Right. Uh, suites uh, that really are designed more for that kind of metal where dynamic range is smaller and there's a lot more ensemble playing. Yeah. Uh, on, on my records, everyone is their own guy. You know what I mean? Everyone's doing something different. So we don't really play parts together like progressive rock, you know, where everyone's playing the exact same riff and you've okay. got to get everyone totally mixed, you know? Well, I mean, you've played in pretty much every studio, on every stage, through every piece of gear at this point. Do you think that, <laughs> you know, talking about this, do you think that engineering has sort of been become like a lost art and like isn't appreciated as it used to be? Well, it may, it's definitely not a lost art. As a matter of fact, I think engineers today uh, are celebrating on one hand because finally the fans can hear all the low end that they hear when they're in a million dollar studio. Right. Uh, and, and that was, you know, back in the old days, I remember, you know, going to cut, uh, to master and to cut the, um, uh, LPs for surfing with the alien and knowing that we were going to take a lot of the low end off because there was no way to get the, you know, the groove to get cut into the vinyl with all the low end that was on the two inch tape. And you kind of go, you know, it's a sad moment. You go, okay. You know, that's going to happen. And then you realize that the, the, the tracks that you put towards the end of every sequence on each side of the album also suffered not only distortion, but also less low end. And, you, and, you know, you get kind of bugged out. Yeah. And, but now it's totally different. There's ultra HD that you can listen to, let's say, on something like uh, Amazon Music. And, and it sounds, I mean, almost identical to what we hear when we're in the studio. And we're about to master something. So that's exciting. And that means that the engineers really, they have no excuse now. Yeah. Because the audience can finally hear, you know, from 20 hertz to 20K, it's being delivered and more. So, yeah, record in 96 or 192 and be prepared for your audience to hear all of it. (laughs) It's interesting that you had to sacrifice tone back in the day for it to fit on the vinyl. Oh, yeah. Isn't that crazy? And, yeah. and then, uh, you know, the other thing about it is today vinyl is made from digital masters. So 
it, we really are just in a whole other, you know, this is the future. This is, you know, this is where we're at. See? It's got really nothing to do with how records were made or how they sounded, how they were played in living rooms in 1970 or 19. Mitch is almost creaming himself, waiting well, to say a CD is the best. Well, CDs <laughs> are the best. And, and this whole thing that vinyl is the greatest sound, it's not. It's digital masters or it's the master for Apple Music and they just shove it on a piece of plastic. It's not better you you just believe it is and you want to buy into the fantasy but it's, pretty. But it's, not. it's pink and it's orange like <laughs> oh, God. i'll tell you what's great about vinyl is the experience that it provides the listener and i think yeah. that's a really big deal and i see this all the time you know i i observe people a lot and uh when i when i'm out in the real world when i'm not you know my head's not filled with music and playing guitars i'll go out and i'll go how do i see people listening to music and i see them completely distracted arbitrarily putting earbuds in uh listening to uh music on uh you know car systems which are ridiculous the eq curve on you know like everybody's <laughs> scooping the mids and just cranking the bass and treble now <laughs> no i mean yeah. the way people listen to music is it's really it just makes a music maker go like throw their hands up in the air and go what, hey. why did i spend all that time on the mid-range if nobody hears it joe you're telling <laughs> me you don't sit there with an iphone in a solo cup blasting through the- <laughs> <Hey>, come on <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. We've all, we've all tried it, you know. We've all had that thing where we've, you know, we've got like a fake radio station set up in the lounge or the recording studio, or oh yeah, you know, the, or the engineer says, "Okay, let me take this out to the car. I'll let you know in ten minutes how it sounds." <laughs> but <laughs> ultimately, I don't think um, any of that matters because people listen to music, uh, and it's the way that they listen to it is part of the experience. So when you get an LP, you're actually uh, I don't want to say forcing, but you're, what you're introducing is a method of listening. And that, I think, is really important. You, you carefully remove something, you look at it, you appreciate its physical form, you put it on this mechanical thing, you're very careful about it, yeah, a- and, and you sit back and you look at it and you listen to it expecting something. And people don't do that when they're just, you know, doing emails and listening to some streaming service they're not even caring it's coming out of some teeny little speaker or it's going into their earbuds they just they've accepted some lower level horrible bluetooth stream thing (laughs) but let me end it by saying this if you guys told me that you had a, a recording of mozart on this piece of paper magically somehow they figured out how to do that i wouldn't care about its fidelity. I really wouldn't. I'd say, oh my God, you've got Mozart recorded on this piece of paper. Right. I'm going to listen to this like all the time. Wow, that's so, like old bootlegs from back in the day. I mean, they all sound like shit from the soundboard <laughs> cassette that's all degraded. And people are like, oh yeah, the Van Halen uh, 77 show Gazaris. It sounds amazing. Look at this. I'm so glad you said that because I've just been playing with this thing. Oh, there you go. You got a Sustaniac it's- in there? It's my own mod on Frankenstein. I don't know. I mean, Eddie's going to come back and kill me, but I just, <laughs> so, but I added, his a, grave. <laughs> I added a Sasaniac, a clear pick guard. I removed the stuff that doesn't do anything. Right. And then I added a kill switch. Now I didn't do this myself. This is uh, master Luthier. Gary Brower did it for me. Wow. And um, so, yes, I, anytime someone says Eddie Van Halen, I feel compelled to show yeah. this guitar. 
Is that you know, the uh, the Stripe Series one, or is that it's not like the twenty five thousand dollar one? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, no, it's the Guitar Center it, one. It'll be a million dollars after I uh, after you guys sign it. It'll yeah, yeah. I'll come sign it for you. Uh, <laughs> no, this great. is you know, great from Bananas at Large, and uh, they're kind enough to get one of these for me. Sounds Look, really good. Fun guitar. At the end um, of the day, Eddie would be proud that you took it and made it your own because that's exactly what he did. Yeah, he was a tinkerer and a great inventor, and thank God, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to take you back to the beginning for for one second because I'm older, and of course, I got to know you with the Greg Kin Band, and of course, Love and Rock and Roll, uh, wow. Love and Rock and Roll. Yeah. You're there, you're playing the breakup song in Jeopardy. You're on stage, you're doing, and then you leave. Were were you not satisfied just being sort of the guy in a sort of a pop band doing the guitar, and you said, you know what? There's got to be more to just playing Jeopardy on stage. I, I <laughs> talk to me about that time, and then moving on and saying, "Nah, man, I, I got to go be an instrumentalist. I got to, I got to break out." Oh well, it's so much more complicated and rich the story about yeah. that whole thing. So let's hear. All right, I'll, I'll do it really quick. So you have to imagine I'm at uh, a little guitar store called Secondhand Guitars in Berkeley, California. Right. I'm giving lessons. Uh, I receive a call from a collection agency while I'm there saying that uh, <laughs> the $5,000 that I owe uh, needs to be paid by the end of the week or things bad things are going to happen. And and so you, you're probably wondering, why did Joe put all that debt on his card? And it was something like 19.5% back then and, and yeah. what, E5 or something. Well, that's because I recorded all of not of this earth my first full-length album on my own record company label rabina record all on that card that was the way i got discounts from all the local studios was to pay everybody up front with these checks that came from this uh this credit card this is back when they used to just mail you credit cards in the in the early 80s and uh so i remember just sitting there thinking what am i going to do like you know this is going to be a tough one and all of a sudden, I get a call from uh, Steve and Greg. They're down at Fantasy, which is across town, maybe, you know, two and a half miles in Berkeley. Right. And they go, Joe, I know this is the second time we've called you in the last couple of years. We really want you to join the band. You got to come this afternoon and help us finish this album. And uh, we'll make it worth your while. So I thought, okay, this is a sign from it above. It cost you $5,000 for me to come down. <laughs> so I went down there and they, they literally recorded me. I think I recorded three or four songs right, right there on the spot. I didn't even hear them. I mean, I just like tune up and they play the song. I'd start playing and they go, that's it. Great. Let's move on to the next song. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. One, so, take, one take Joe. That's his new nickname. Let's move on. Really? And then uh, afterwards, they were very happy. And, you know, I've known the guys for quite a few years because we right. they were kind enough to let us open for them. Uh, I was in a band called The Squares and we do a lot mm -hmm. of shows uh, f with them. And, and they were a great band. I mean, they really had a thing going and, and greg was a really good front person great singer and um but uh the manager lays on a ridiculous amount of cash and he says if we give you all this cash and we promise to pay you this per week will you please you know say you'll stay with us for a year and i had to think about that like how am i going to get this record finished paid and i'm already talking to relative records in new york about doing a p and d deal with them and that's a production distribution. Right. And so it all clicked. And I said, okay, 
let's shake hands. I'll do it. So as I'm on tour with Greg, two things are happening. My relationship with Relativity Records is getting better and better. And we get a release date for this first album of mine. And the Great Kim Band is falling apart. It was like being on a plane that was on fire that was just slowly <laughs> descending. <laughs> and, it, and it was a rough, you know, because I'd seen that band in Berkeley for years and I'd seen them rise from being a local club band to being, you know, to having like the number two record in the in the world, you know, and it was it, it was kind of sad to see that happen. Um, but I stayed with them up until about uh, October, I think. So, yeah, I, I gave them about 11 months or so, but it just fell apart. It was their last record for uh, EMI for a I, while. Right. Yeah. So it was EMI. And uh, I went on, uh, I went to Sweden. I played with uh, um, Jonas Helborg for about a month. I came back, did a showcase for Relativity and played them Satch Boogie and a few things, new songs I was working on. And they, right there at the China Club in New York City, they signed me to wow. a deal to do the next album, which was Surfing with the Aliens. So wow. it, it was a crazy year. You know, and but it was followed by even a crazier year because I I did that record for the next year. As soon as it came out and I hit the road a week later, I joined Mick Jagger's solo band. So it was another, it was like, you know, these back-to-back years where my life went through some crazy changes, all for the better. Um, and you paid off the credit card. So wow, that was crazy. I'll never do. That. I do. I don't recommend that to anyone. Was, was that it called was Cousin so Vinny? Was it? Was it the Cousin Vinny credit card? It was. You know, I don't remember it, but it came but, from like uh, South Carolina or West Virginia. It was you know, it was some oh. bank that I never heard of before that said, you know, uh, Joseph Satriani, because of your good standing in the community, we have decided to give you this credit card uh. and. Uh, I'd like a sucker. I just said, okay. Yeah, why not? Well, let me just quickly, uh, let me just quickly follow up on that. But, but playing in a band situation like Greg, was, was that just not satisfying for you creatively? Not, not in terms of the people, but did, did you sort of look at your guitar and say, there, there's more than just planging along to these songs. There's, 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 you know, surfing with the alien in my head. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there was, cause I, as I was on tour with Greg, I was writing, surfing ice nine songs like that in the hotel rooms and very excited about it and uh but at the same time i gotta say it's a privilege when you get to play on stage and and stand you know with the band and watch somebody like greg work an audience every night i mean i i've done i've been on stage with Mick Jagger, do that, and Sammy Hagar and Ian Gillen from Deep Purple. These are very special people with this very unique talent. They got yeah. great voices. They have this personality uh, where they can they can just light up a room. Doesn't matter if it's five people or fifty thousand or a hundred thousand. They can take control of it just by looking at people and talking and singing. And uh, Greg was great fun that way. He was really totally live and and legit you know mm-hmm. had a great voice back then too yeah you gotta love it and then i'll just quickly follow up with this surfing comes out or not of this earth also comes out 
I am from that era. It wasn't really an era of instrumental music. It was Def Leppard, it was Bon Jovi, it was Debbie Gibson, it was Madonna. It was big, flashy, you know. This wasn't big, flashy, whatever. Did did at any point of you say, you know, I got to get a vocalist. I got to get a, I got to get the spandex. I got... Talk to me about, <laughs> about taking that chance and saying, nope, this is what I do. I don't care if it's 1987. This is what I'm doing my get. backing vocals. I... Yeah. <laughs> I think there's, a, you know, it was just there were some gray areas where, uh, well, first of all, I got to tell you a funny situation when I, I did go to that uh uh, the the show at the China Club, a little showcase, you know, at uh, after uh, I finished playing with Greg. And um, I play that show. I go out to the record company offices and I'm standing in the middle of the offices around all the employees right next to Barry Coburn, the president. Mm -hmm. And he's looking really nervous because he's looking at me and he says out loud, you don't look like a rock star. <laughs> and you could, you know, there was a silence in the room because everyone was thinking, well, why would you say that? He was genuinely nervous about signing me because I didn't look like my good friend, Steve. I, he was cut out to be a rock star, you know? Right. And so I said, well, you know, what I do is something different. It's something unique. It's different. And, and you either have to get it or you don't. And right. uh, luckily there were other people uh, in uh, the record company, especially Cliff Coltrary, uh, head of A&R, who really understood and told those guys, you have to understand what Joe's doing here. It's something unique. He doesn't have to wear the spandex. We don't have to put grotesque images. wig on and stuff. No, because you know, as a fan back then, when Def Leppard had a song and it hit the radio, I go, oh, I understand it. It's got the melody. It's got... But when yours became a success, I just went, Wow. How did that happen? Because it, in a sense, it wasn't supposed to happen because you weren't <laughs> the MTV guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was always a struggle. Even when we tried to be, you know, MTV people, we got pushback all the time. And there's, there's yeah. plenty of funny stories about all those videos and how they eventually succeeded uh, in spite of being snubbed <laughs> by MTV. Uh, but I, you know, it's really, I got to say the DJs came to, uh, my rescue. Um, there were guys like Redbeard, uh, down in Texas who just yeah. decided he loved the album and he would play it or KLOS in, in Los Angeles. They just play the whole album, you know, like every Sunday, the uncensored whole too. Yeah. It was yeah. pretty remarkable. And, and they were, they were the, the intermediate between me and my fans who were just waiting for it. They just didn't know I was out there. So, right. uh, yeah, all the credit goes to the DJs and the fans. Um, I would have done it anyway, you know, uh, right. uh I, I, I do it on a smaller scale, but it was really a gift that just kind of fell into my lap. And, um, but you know, you gotta, I, I tell young people all the time, you have to be prepared for good luck, even though it seems, ridiculous to think that you could succeed at, at you know your dream if you prepare yourself for that when it comes you'll be ready you'll have something um and but if you're not ready it'll pass you by it'll go to the next guy who's ready yeah right well yeah. look i mean here we are 19th studio album later uh brand new record the elephants of mars coming out on april 8th you can pre-order it now 
talking about this new record, how has your approach to writing music changed over the years? Is it still the same old Joe or are you constantly surprising yourself? I try to surprise myself. Um, you know, I think one, one of the big things that when I look back to, let's say, when I was 14 and I was learning guitar and I tried to write songs, I had very little to write about. I'd only been on the planet for 14 years. And when you're 14, it's mainly like hormones and stuff. <laughs> it's, it's not a whole lot going, up, going on in the brain, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's fun. It's, you know, one of the greatest times ever uh, when you're that young. Um, it's a great time to learn something physical, too, because your body's really cooperating at the highest level. But you haven't lived yet, you know. So how do you come up with 60, you know, different versions of I feel good or I feel sad or I'm in love or I'm not in love anymore? You know, you have to live life to understand the complexities of it and then to turn it into art. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think um, my method is to be more relaxed with myself, to open up more to myself and to, to reach down and not be ashamed or embarrassed or afraid to write about difficult subjects. Uh, and also to say, no, this is a silly song, you know, and I'm yeah. going to, Take it right to the as silliest point possible, because I'm I feel like I'm old enough and I can do that now. <laughs> I would have been more self conscious. Like when you're a kid, you're really self conscious about what your friends think of you, you know, yeah. or the other people in the room. But as you get older, you start to say, I don't care what people think. So the hope is that your body's still cooperating enough where you can perform these things that you're coming up with these new deeper representations of real emotions whenever we talk to songwriters like um desmond child for example he always says he comes in with a song title and then the song works around the title he always comes in with a really strong title how do yeah. you write your music are you coming in with the title then coming up with melody around that or like or do you have the song and then you say oh this sounds like east 104th street new york city <laughs> yeah um uh, that's where my father grew up, by the way. That's that's what that whole thing's about. Uh, nice. Between First and Second Avenue, and um, but um, I I think that uh, it comes almost all at once. The meaning of the song, the the um, the sound of it in my head, the the full emotional inspiration. It seems to sort of come really fast, and I'll write it down. That's the key. Is for me to write down the title and then to hold on to that inspiration and not let go until I've got a good representation of what it is. So I might, you know, jot it down, just a chord sequence. It might be if I've got manuscript paper down, I'll jot it down. Uh, I'll record it on my phone or if I'm sitting in the studio, I'll get the pro tools up and I'll make a decent professional <laughs> an attempt at a professional recording yeah. anything to get it down and before i lose track of why i was so you know enthralled with that title or the meaning of that and are you um, a voice notes guy do you just have like tons of voice notes in your phone with ideas no can't stand the sound of my voice <laughs> 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 so that would drive me crazy but i do have lots of notes and and you know scraps of paper everywhere uh you yeah. know with fun titles that I look at and I go, 
what was I thinking? What does that mean? You know, elephants of Mars, you know, but, uh, but, you know, sometimes, it, you know, it's so complex, like, uh, uh, like uh, the song Sahara was so complex. I wrote the lyrics, I recorded the demo, I sent it off within a day. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out that I don't think anybody, especially my singer thought that it was a good thing to try to sing. And I probably just wrote like really bad lyrics or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, months later, it came back because uh, my producer said, I love that song. But it, how about if it was an instrumental? What would you do different? And so I had to revisit it and kind of take those lyrics and, and you know, distill it down in, into, um, into melody and figure out how can a guitar express this feeling? And yeah. Um, elephants of mars title track the music actually in a short sort of a crystallized form existed for quite a while before i got the idea that it should be this big song and that then i got the idea for uh, a science fiction story and i ran it by my writing partner ned evett at satch tunes and we wrote the full story and then i brought it back to the band to say here's the song it'll be the title track and this is what it's all about. And of course, we all had a good laugh because it's a crazy idea. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it helped everybody relax and and play more crazy, you know, because right. it is a song about giant sentient elephants on a terraform Mars in the future. So, and yeah. and it really does give you kind of free reign to just be creative and just come up with cool shit. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because if I said no, this is about walking your dog, you know. I'd, everyone would be so bored they just give me boring performances you know so but uh, you give them a good story and they they start thinking oh what have i got that is as crazy as that title you know? right and i mean look a song like gotta walk the dog i mean what it's four syllables gotta walk the dog like it's too simple which, by the way, is the exact activity I'm going to do as soon as we're done with this interview. I've got two of them scratching at the door, so. Oh, <laughs> nice. Uh, well, listen, I know we're running out of time, but just real quick, brand new record from Joe Satriani. It's called The Elephants of Mars. You can pre-order it now, coming out on April 8th. Go and pick it up. The vinyls look phenomenal. CD, of course, uh, you get the studio quality that he wants you to hear, right? Uh, 14 songs. Over the years, 15 Grammy nominations. Are you still pissed at them? <laughs> no, no, I don't care about that. It's always nice that they, I, I'm just surprised I know how to spell my last name. So I'm, right. I'm very happy. <laughs> uh, right. One question I have for you, just a, a guitar question. You've taught some of the most incredible players over the years. Uh, I'm a guitar player and a musician. I'm constantly looking to up my game. Uh, just from a guitar playing standpoint, what's a really good warm up you recommend to students? And what's a good repetitive lick to try and build up speed and finger strength? Oh yeah. That's crazy. Isn't it? Um, everybody wants to know that. I, th- I think after watching uh, a lot of young players uh, on Instagram today that I am completely unqualified to answer that question, first of all, because they play so much better than I could ever play in terms of speed, dexterity, complexity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, really exciting for the first time in the history of the world that there are guitar players that can do that on six string, seven string, eight string, 10 string. It's really great. I wish their albums were in the top 10 instead of them having to do that every day on Instagram, but there you go. But, you know, bravo to them. Um, I'm still doing chromatic exercises that I learned 
you know, back in 1970, because I think all you really want to do is kind of warm up. I think it's really more important to know where every note is on the guitar and to know how every scale sounds and where it is in every key. I know that's like, that's like the Mount Everest set of, you know, things to accomplish when you're a beginner. But the speed thing, I think just comes, it'll just come when you start playing with people, but young people have to understand they should spend more time playing music for people and with people because that's our job as musicians Mm -hmm. you know it's not to get better in our bedroom looking at the mirror that's not actually a viable way to live (laughs) yeah what but musicians are supposed to make music for people and uh and that's an art form that can't be distilled into a set of exercises you really just have to get with people get in front of people, start playing and see if it, if you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Just have fun, play the music you like with the people you like and do it in front of people. See if you can get them to laugh and smile, right. yeah. dance. Well, and what. I'll tell you what, I had people laughing at me, man. Cause it's like, you talk about the Instagram <laughs> people, they all in their bed, they're in their bedrooms, posting a video. They can practice eruption all they want then throw it up on Instagram. But then you put them up at smoke meat Pete's on jam night, playing some blues. And it's like, here you go. And it's like, ah, uh, key of yeah. E where, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. you know, the improvisation just isn't there. <laughs> yeah. It's a different, uh, it's a different world. I mean, if you looked at, if you went back in time and you took a really great uh, rock and roll or blues or jazz player, uh, you know, and you tried to get them to provide the right kind of music for Fortnite or something like that, they, it just, you know, it would be a total failure. And uh, so there's, you know, it's apples and oranges or it's kind of like an unfair comparison. It's 2022. This is the reality. Uh, but man, those young players are just doing amazing things. They really are. And they, and if you're a young guitar player, you should be studying that and, and realizing that is a display of human potential and you've got it inside of you as a young person starting out. Um, I can't imagine in 10 years, what, what guitar players are going to be doing. It's so exciting. Yeah. Uh, we got a question from Twitter. They want to know, are you running all of your effects through the effects loop or is it going through the front of the amp? Oh, the only thing that's in the effects loop um, is uh, is the fractal, and I use it for digital delay, some reverb, maybe one song where I need some backwards effects. Um, that's it. But, you know, flangers, wah-wah, phasers, uh, octavers, uh, fuzz pedals, they all go, they all are in front of the amp, yeah, between the guitar and the amp. There you go. Um, yeah. I know you had a couple of art shows back in January, but just real quick, I mean, aside from the one you got booked in March, are you going to be hitting the road with this music at some point this year or? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're gearing up towards, um, uh, finalizing the fall tour in the U S I'm still waiting to find out if we're going to Europe, uh, in the spring, which is upon us. Uh, but it's crazy. I mean, just trying to get a straight answer from 17 different countries in Europe. Has, yeah. <laughs> Try coming to Canada. <laughs> I know. Isn't it crazy? It's like now I'm starting to worry about it. How, how are we going to, I mean, crossing the border, as you know, between the U S and Canada is harder than going from like Serbia to Croatia. I, I don't know. What, it's but, 
but now it's not, it's even harder. So I'm, you know, hopefully this insanity just calms down and everyone goes back to playing nice. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and we can just have fun again. I'm sure it's coming, but it, we have to be patient in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, there you just go. one last question. You got your chicken foot brethren on this uh, new album. You got Kenny Arnoff. I mean, he filled in for Chad when he couldn't tour. Uh, yeah. Is there any new chicken foot in the pipeline at some point? Do you see yourself writing with Sammy and Mikey getting back with the guys? You know, I, I talk with Sam a lot. I was just at his uh, studio last week. Um, I, you know, all of us have like these huge plans. Like when we check in with each other, we go, oh, wow, that's what you're doing for the next year and a half. And so, uh, it seems so difficult, but every in the past, everything we did as a band was done at the spur of the moment. And right. so we're not saying that's never going to happen, but we're not sure how it can happen uh, with the Chili Peppers about to mount another, you know, yep. world domination yeah, for yeah. a new record. Uh, Sammy's uh, busy planning his life as well, as well as uh, Jason in the circle. Uh, he's going out on tour for his uh, Led Zeppelin uh, thing so um and they all know i'm super busy i have a new album and the and the yeah. the you know the art exhibition so we'll figure it out <laughs> yeah. but that's so, not you, a you, no no you, you grab kenny and you go play all the state fairs as chicken foot that's it that's all <laughs> <laughs> yeah get a sammy and mikey impersonator Why yeah, not? That's what you, yeah. Need. you can call yourself singer. the other half you know how, how impossible i'll tell you there's no you cannot replace those two people. Sammy and Mike are just like. Oh, Eddie and Al would beg to differ. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I was a fan of their no comment. Band, and so, you know, it's really. <laughs> but, you know, my experience playing with those guys is this is really you can't really just replace people. I mean, no, it just really work, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But those state fairs do sound inviting, though. They really do. I don't know. I just I'm, I'm I can smell the corn dogs already. The corn dogs and the the terrible backline supplied by the local music shop. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways, anyway. listen, uh, let's get out of here. Brand new record from Joe Satriani. Go pick it up. Uh, April 8th, The Elephants of Mars. Pre-order it now. Go get it. It's going to be fantastic. Joe, this is so great to meet you in chat. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the show and talking about the new record. It's really, really been a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. Yes. We'll, uh, we'll we will hopefully around. see you in Montreal soon. Yes. Yeah. Would be great. Yeah, be awesome. bien. Thank and you. Have fun with your Sustainiac and Kill Switch on that Frankenstein. <laughs> I'm going to do right now as soon as I log off. <laughs> blasphemy, blasphemy. Yes. <laughs> all right. You, see sir. you later. An all new episode of the Mitchell Fun and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream.